that is really my foundation in anything I do or anywhere I decided to go. Or even though you don't have the skills yet, if you work hard, you can get them. That's going to always be my, my foundation. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter, and this is our podcast, Building a Coaching Culture. As always, here with my co-host, Lucas Flatter. He is the millennial voice in the conversation. I'm the boomer voice in the conversation. And today, our distinguished guest is Ms. Gina Bonda. I'll remind everybody who our listeners are, uh, leaders of complex organizations, similar to the organizations you're leading, Gina who are competing and succeeding in the 21st century labor market. And so what advice do we have for them? What information could we pass along? So before we get started, I just want you to take a minute and brag about yourself a little bit. I know you by reputation and we work together a little bit. Over to you. So hello, everyone. Like I said, I'm Gina Banda and I'm an Air Force civil service employee. And so originally I'm from a small little town out in West Texas called Fort Stockton. A lot of people haven't heard of it unless they've actually traveled down I-10 and had to stop and put gas there. And if you've stopped and put gas there, you know, it's a really small town. Population is about 10,000 people. Really good place to grow up as a child. And, you know, kind of gave me a little bit of, of insight on really what I wanted to do. And one of the things that I wanted to do was basically get out of a small town. And so having done that, I joined the Air Force. I joined the Air Force right at 18 years old. I came in, I was enlisted, and I actually served the Air Force and retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service. Now, in my Air Force career, my specialty was really personnel. And it wasn't only until after I retired that I joined the Air Force Civil Service and started getting into civilian leadership development. So... As I joined the Air Force, I got married. I have my husband still of 34 years. So my husband and I were high school sweethearts. We went to high school together. We're from the same town. He went off to college. I went off to the Air Force. And then we ended up getting back together. And we have two sons. Our sons are Brandon and Adrian. And so like I said, after I retired from my short 20-year career in the Air Force, I decided that the Air Force was so good to me that I didn't want to leave. And so I ended up joining the Air Force in the civil service capacity as a civil service employee. And so one of the first jobs that I had as civil service was I started working in the civilian leadership development office. And when I started working in the office, I really didn't even understand what civilian development really meant. And again, my background being in personnel, we really just dealt with a lot of like retirement actions, promotion actions, so forth. I really didn't get into a lot of developmental programs and, and to understand what the Air Force offered until I became a civilian. So again, I started there at the Civilian Leadership Development Office. I started as a little GS9 program manager. I started a lot of new programs from the ground up when I first started what we call CDE, Civilian Developmental Education. We only had 15 programs in our portfolio. And so we were able to get that out. The CDE program is an enterprise-wide program. So we touched all career fields spanning across the Air Force. And so uh, we were housed at AFPC, which the program is still there. And now I left a year ago. And when I left, the program has grown now to 36 programs. And the key to that is that the programs are very high caliber programs. And in order for us to be able to look at the entire population, it does require a competitive process to select those individuals that get to attend those programs. And so our office also facilitated the entire nomination call from the time we announced the advertisements. We did all of that. And then we also did the selections. And then we turned around 
the thing that I think people don't understand either is that our program managers also manage the civilians while they're in school. You know, unlike the military, the military PCSs to schools and then they become a school asset. But for the civilians, it doesn't work like that. And so my team, as I left there, was the, I was the chief of the Leadership Development and Education and Training Office. When I left there, I had a team of 10 and they were all program managers and they all managed the civilians while they're in training. Some of the courses, as you're aware, we have are one week. Some of them were 10 months. We have one that's two years and two months. And so the program managers are tracking those civilians as they're in school. So we're kind of like their lifeline and the person that they can reach back to while they're in school. So I did that for 11 years. So really that is a lot of the background that I have in leadership development. Like I said, we we facilitated the call, we did the selection process, we facilitated the boards. You know, we brought in senior leaders from throughout the Air Force to be able to come in and and select their best and brightest applicants and be able to to go ahead and um, select them for the limited amount of quotas that we did offer. And so, like I said, doing that for 11 years, I learned a lot. I was able to do make a lot of movement. We were able to do a lot of automation. That was one of the biggest things that I was really proud of is that we were the ones who moved the civilians developmental education program into my vector, which was an automated platform. We changed it from where people are emailing applications in and submitting them to now being able to have the complete process automated. And so right as I was leaving, the entire cycle now was when we restarted, we only launched like 45% of the entire platform the way that it exists today. And now we have uh, the entire 100% of the process is now created and done in my vector. And so the automation piece was really key. And like I said, I'm really proud of the fact that myself and my team did that. And so we really, I felt made a big impact on the developmental, developmental education programs for civilians. So after leaving there, after 11 years, like I said, we had about 36 programs in our portfolio the, and that program is still growing. Uh, I still kind of help a little bit on that side as far as now that I'm in the MAGCOM area, now that I moved from the headquarters to the MAGCOM area. And so I still help the AETC MAGCOM in some cases you know, manage their civilian DE programs. So since I moved over here now to AETC, the other thing is AETC now has created the Force Development Command. And so now we will be managing now under the Force Development Command umbrella. So some of those programs will kind of still be in our reach, but still be, you know, managed at AFPC. But now that we're working the Force Development Command, it'll bring on an entire new area for us both in the military and the, in the civilian world. Like I said, I just moved here about a year ago. And now one of the big things that we're working on is we're looking at, we created a survey to determine whether there was a gap in leadership development at the tactical level. And like I said, and before my experience was mainly more in, in the senior leader development area. And so now I'm looking at the tactical level development, which are the lower graded civilians. Because in Gina's mind, I felt that we need to start leadership development for civilians at a lower grade. And then gradually, as the individuals progress through the system, then we offer the senior development programs at that level. And so I felt that there were there was going to be areas where we really did need to, to kind of hit those target areas critically so that we can make an impact when they became senior leaders. And so that's what we're currently working on. We're about to deploy the survey here in the next few months. And then once we do, we'll evaluate the data. We'll turn around and see where the gaps are. And then we're, we're looking at working with the Civilian Leadership Development School at Maxwell that just recently got stood up for the Air Force. And we're going to work with them, their program developers and their course developers to be able to see, determine where the gaps are and then help us create courses to help fill that gap. And so that's really the next thing that we're working on in the professional development area and under the Force Development Command. But all of that changed when a few months ago I was asked to start working now the 
Department of the Air Force Coaching Culture Program. And so I recently took that over one February. The one thing that I do want to note is that I am not a coach. I will probably be looking at that now that I am going to be managing the program. And I'm just learning just like everyone else. The difference is, is that I have a lot of program management experience. So several years of program management experience. And so we're hoping that that experience helps me to take the program again, like we did CDE, you know, kind of where it started kind of small and then grow it to where to where it was when I left. So that's really what the hope is. And like I said, in the meantime, I'm also going to try to obtain, you know, to become a coach so that I can really understand and see what coaching is all about. And, and so that I'm able to speak to individuals about coaching from a coach perspective, which is something I'm lacking right now. So that brings us to today in the Department of the Air Force Coaching Program. We are, the Department of the Air Force has decided that we want to create a coaching culture for the Air Force. And so it is pretty new to us. I know that it's probably been on the civilian sector, you know, you know, it's been more prominent in the civilian sector, but it's pretty new to the Department of the Air Force. And so there's very few people who have actually been coached and experienced coaching in the Air Force, considering the number of people that we have. And so, like I said, it's fairly new. We're, we're just starting this new culture. And one of the main things that we're working on is we started these four major lines of effort for coaching. And those lines are we're working on internal coaching, which is our first line of effort. And so with that, we're creating a Department of the Air Force, a cadre of coaches. And so we're trying to build that with ourselves internally so that the Air Force can use their Air Force employees to coach other Air Force employees. And so that's really the goal right now. When I first took over the program, we had 75 coaches. I'm happy to say we're up to 125 now uh, and growing because we are starting to discover that there are a lot of Air Force employees out there who are already master coaches and ICF certified coaches, and they want to join our cadre and volunteer their time. And so what we're doing with that is, like I said, we have the cadre. Now the cadre we're using and we're soliciting for clients. And then now our office is doing a coach client matching. And so we're in the process of doing that right now. The second major line of effort that we're working under the Department of the Air Force coaching culture is external coaching. And that's where we are partnering with outside companies to provide coaching and coach training. The third area is integration of coaching skills. And by that, we mean that we want for the force development education and training programs to be able to introduce coaching in their courses and just even say, hey, if you're interested in coaching skills, having having those coaching skills so that when you provide feedback and so as you're talking to other individuals, you can use those coach-like skills to do that. And so that's what we mean by the integration of coaching skills. And then the fourth major element is the messaging metrics and framework. And Gina's ready to do it again. We're ready to try to put the Air Force coaching piece into my vector. And we would like for the my vector platform to be able to be like the system that helps us do the matching. It also helps where if an individual is looking for a coach, they can go out there to my vector and say, okay, I'm looking for a coach. I'm interested. Here are some of my you know, interests and traits. And, and then it also provides like a list of coaches so that that individuals can select coaches from that particular platform. So that's another area that we're looking at starting to develop. And then also areas, you know, there's, we have quite a bit of areas that we're working on, but the other thing is creating special experience identifiers for our coaches, because we want to be able to code them so that we can track them, you know, in, in case we need to go back out and say, okay, how many coaches do we have? How many, co- how many people are served by coaches? And that kind of thing. So we want to create a mechanism and identify them so that we can go out and, and identify these coaches and be able to do this coaching match. So that's really Gina and Gina's a little bit of civilian employment history. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah, you're a busy woman. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as you were talking, uh, I don't know if you've read this book yet, Creating a Coaching Culture. No, I haven't. 
Peter Hawkins, uh, we'll drop it in the chat for you, but he has an amazing model that talks a lot about everything you talked about. It sounded like you'd read it already. That's why I brought it up. But it, no, actually, I didn't. I did. Uh, they had a working group that they had created. The Air Force had created a working group of about 100 people. And the working group kind of put these areas together. Mm -hmm. And then when they decided that it was time to run the execution piece, it was currently being done at half. And then they realized, okay, maybe this is going to be, you know, a standalone program and we want the execution to be run out of the force development command. And sure. so that's where it kind of moved over. But I believe that a lot of the framework and all of the stuff that they created, maybe the working group, maybe researched that and did all that for us. So I got it handed to me, thankfully. And then, so now I just get to wrap my arms around it and run and make it grow. Yeah, we've been working with Melissa and Lori and uh -huh. other folks on that team for a while now. A great bunch of people. Yep. So you've gone through an amazing transformation, and we work with a lot of people in transition. A lot of our listeners are in transition. So when you're at that crossroads that you were at, and that's we call ourselves Two Roads Leadership because we're at those crossroads a lot, how did you decide to go civilian versus commercial versus government contractor. What was that like for you? So one of the, the key things that I learned, you know, now later on in my more experienced life, which I didn't really, I don't really feel I did well when I was in the enlist, when I was an enlisted person, was I didn't really do strategic planning for my life. So I really felt like the goals that I had established were really for my career. And so I didn't really feel that I did strategic planning from, I didn't really look at myself maybe 10 years down the road or five years down the road, or I retired as a master sergeant. So I didn't really have the plans to kind of get to the chief point. So I really felt that had I learned that early on, it would have helped me better in my transition. So like, for example, I always did special duty assignments. I worked at ROTC detachments but never really realizing the benefits that I needed to do or the things that I needed to do to get myself prepared. And so I felt like I was shortchanging myself competing in the civilian sector. And so that's why I felt more comfortable competing in civil service. Do I regret doing that now? No, I don't. I, I really have enjoyed it. Like I said, I've had an awesome military career, now a civilian career. But I, I think that my big advice to people who are transitioning is to start strategic planning for your life. You know, get your civilian degrees, get your civilian training that's going to help you transition into, you know, the civilian sector easier. Learn how to write a resume that really doesn't say, well, you know, I was an NCO in charge of. The civilian sector doesn't read resumes like that. You know, you need to kind of learn to write where, you know, I was a first-line supervisor of, you know, things like that. I didn't really prepare myself well to be able to transition to the civilian sector. And that's how I felt when I was getting ready to retire. And so I thought there's a lot of things I should have done, could have done, but didn't do. And so my biggest advice to people now is that do the strategic planning for your life, not just for your career or for your job, because that'll help you transition. You'll be more comfortable. You'll be more confident. Your resume will be built up and look better. So like, for example, if I was an IT person, you know, you come out of there with all of those IT certifications because those will transition into civilian life. Do those things ahead of time so that it'll help you transition. So I don't know if that's the right term, but I call it strategic planning for your life. Because where do you want to be in three to five years? Where do you want to be in five to 10 years? And if it's working for Google or Apple or whatever company you want, then you need to start preparing yourself ahead of time to do that. And another thing is that I didn't really take advantage of a lot of the military programs like civilian tuition assistance. I never took advantage of that. I did do a lot of clepping. I clepped a lot of courses. I clipped my entire associate's degree. But other than that, I didn't take advantage of the 100%, you know, tuition assistance to help me get my degrees and so forth. 
So those are the two big key things that I would like for people to kind of understand is that you've got to do strategic planning for your life. If you wait until the year you're going to retire, it could be way too late for you. And again, because I felt I wasn't ready, I felt very comfortable transitioning to civil service where I knew the ranks, I knew the grades, I knew the bases, I knew the structure, I knew the lingo, and I could just fall right back to my comfort zone. You know, like I said, thankfully, it's been a great career for me, and I don't regret one minute of it, but I also think that I could have done a better job when I was in the military to strategically plan for my life. Oh, great. That's amazing. Uh, two thoughts real quick, Lucas, and then jump to you. So you'll be happy to know when the CCFC, we teach 35-1 today. Where do you want to be in 30 years? Yes. Therefore, great. where do you need to be in five? Where do you need to be in one? Yes. And what do you got to do today before you go to sleep? And secondly, we put a uh, poll out on LinkedIn about a month ago asking, when should you start your transition? And I was really surprised at the feedback we got. Almost everyone said now <laughs> or the day, now. You, yes. the day you start. So yeah, great advice. Look um, at what you got. So when you talk about automation, my eyes light up. I, I'm a super, <laughs> super geek about automating things. So when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, okay, I want to get rid of a repetitive task, you know, make it easier for myself. But then operationally, you're looking at, okay, you've automated these things, so now you can focus on these things. So from that perspective, what does the automation allow your team to do that it wasn't able to before? So that's a great question. So I'm a huge fan of automation, but I'm also not a, not a big fan of changing and automating just for the sake of changing auto, you know, an automation. I'm not a fan of that. If the process lends itself to be automated, I'm all for it. And so that's one of the first things we have to look at is really, does the process lend itself to be, you know, automated? Because there could be processes that really require, you know, still having a human touch to it. And so that piece, you know, I would definitely not want to do because there have been items where, where I kind of held back and not automated those pieces just yet. But in the automation piece, once you determine that the process, you know, can be automated, then of course we're looking for work hour savings. So I was looking at more towards what would be the benefit of automating that would help save my team work hours or man hours, because we were already very tasked and we already had a lot of programs and a lot of duties and a lot of responsibilities. And so I was looking for ways to kind of open up some room for them so that we, it could save on their workload. So once we determined that it was, then we of course, had to kind of mirror the military side of the DE program that had already existed in, in my vector. But the big difference is, is that in the military, which is the, the officer and the enlisted DE processes, for them to apply for a DE program, it's not voluntary. They fall within a year group. The systems people go out and they create, they create a list from, you know, the this, like mail PDS, they create a system and said, give me the people in these year groups that are eligible. And then they dump the data into my vector. And then the, the member gets a notification that says, hey, you're eligible, go here. On the civilian side, it doesn't work that way. The civilian side is really more voluntary. We have all grades, you know, all year groups. And so we really couldn't narrow the field that way. So the other thing was what we wanted to do is we wanted to automate the application process to make it easier. So we know that there's a lot of young employees, you know, pack interns and so forth that want to apply for these programs, but they don't want to follow the cumbersome process of having to type everything out, fill everything out, staff it up to their leadership, get it back in a e-staff summary sheet, get it all together, and then fax it in or email it in. And so we felt that we would also get more applicants if we automated the process and made it simpler for people to apply, you know, one-stop shop kind of thing. You go into the system, you create your application, you type in your resume, you tell us what programs you're eligible for. And then once you get that all done in a nice little package, it flows over to your supervisor. The supervisor just provides their endorsement and it flows over to our office. 
And then we can do all of that instantaneously. We can get you feedback on that. We received your application within a day. So really the goal was, well, it was two goals. One was the workload and one to increase the applications by making the process easier. So that's what we're hoping to do now with the coaching piece. You know, we want to be able to, if someone says, hey, today I decided that I feel like I need a coach. Then we want you to be able to go to the platform and say, hey, I'm interested in coaching. I'm looking for a coach. Here's some of my information. And then let the system look at the coaches that we have and be able to match that. And we currently don't have that in the Air Force. And so that's why that's going to be another piece, like I said, that we're looking at trying to automate. Another thing that we're looking at since I took over the program is we're looking at the data that we're collecting on the coaches and on the clients. And so we're working with our A9 folks, which is our systems folks, to be able to kind of create a platform in using Microsoft Pages. And so what we'll do is we want to send the link out because right now we send them a spreadsheet. They fill out the spreadsheet, email it back to us. And so we're tracking a bunch of emails back and forth. And so we'd like to have the link sent to them. We want them to open it up, fill out the information, and, and then it updates live. And then we, well, all we do is when we look at it on our end is we just have to pull a report to see who's updated and so forth. We're almost there. We've already started working with them on that. Uh, we're just having some Privacy Act issues that we're trying to work through and system issues, but they, they've already developed it, that for us. We've already demoed it. And so we're almost there. So again, just trying to look at places where we can save man hours, work hours to allow us the time to do other things. Because right now we are a team of two. Like I said, in CDE, I had a team of 10 and here, here we only are a team of two. And so it's manageable right now because right now coaching is so new, but every day we're getting all kinds of requests and, and it is starting to grow. The word is starting to get out there. People want to attend the CCFC course. They're asking me, when's the next one already? And so we need to figure out ways now, start now with ways that we can help ourselves through automation to save us on man hours and work hours and so forth. And so that's always been kind of my style, you know, my type of style and anywhere we can do, I'll do the work. I'll do the, I'll stay late. I'll stay in the meetings. I'll help you. I'll send you all the stuff that I need. I'll tell you how I want it designed. I'll do all that work because it's going to pay off in the long run. And, and it's, yeah, we saw it, we saw it with CDE, you know, we saw the increase actually when we launched in CDE, when we launched the my vector application there was so many people on there. There was over 20,000 in one day that it locked the system down because people were interested. They wanted to go out there and it did increase our numbers. It did increase the applications. And so we've seen it. We've seen it work. We've seen it done. And so that's going to be our goal now is to try to automate as much as the program as we can right from the start. You know, we're not going to wait, you know, a few years like we did in CDE to kind of get that going. So hopefully it'll work. You touched on how you can kind of have more visibility on the process if it's automated mm -hmm. because then instead of sitting in somebody's inbox, mm -hmm. there's just an alert or something at some point in the process. So you can yeah. say, oh, is it is the process slowing down here, here, or here? So that's really cool. Yep. And we can definitely tell an applicant. If they call us, we can tell them exactly where their application is, where it's sitting, if their endorser has endorsed. We can tell them all of that. We can tell them exactly where the application is in the process. Mm -hmm. I've been in the leadership development world for a while. And one of the biggest challenges, and I love to hear you talk about metrics, and that is measuring the ROI of leadership development. Talk to us a little bit about how you do that well. Well, sir, it's, that's been a really difficult item for us is to measure return on investment. So what we do now in the Air Force is we kind of have what we call a service agreement, a continued service agreement. And so all of the programs that we manage, a lot of the programs that I'm managing now, they're at no cost to the, to the employee or the organization. So, and, I, and I'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later on, but what we do is we want, the, we want to send the employee, want to get them the training that, and the development that they need, but we also want to return on our investment for the Air Force. And so what we do is we have them sign what we call a continued service agreement, 
depending on the length of the course and the cost of the course, will determine how much they owe the Air Force back. So as an example, if you go for a week, you know, you might owe us back three months, you know, depending on the cost, it could be up to a year. So we definitely want to see the members, you know, kind of take that training that they learned, the, you know, what we paid for, and then be able to bring it right back to the Air Force and teach others. And then, of course, talk about the program so we can get more people through. And then, and it, it will be continue. It'll continue in a cycle. The toughest part for us is to determine whether the training and the development that they went to is effective for the Air Force. And so, one of the ways that we did it, of course, we tracked a lot of data. We tracked a lot of data, which we are starting to do now in the coaching world as well. We are collecting a lot of data, a lot of information on individuals. And then we go back and we say, where are they now? And where, where have they been? Or where, have they, where are they going to next? Have they been promoted? Because we know that a lot of the programs that we do, well, the majority of the programs that we do, it's not a guarantee for promotion. I mean, it'll help and, and hopefully it'll open a lot of doors, but you don't get promoted coming out of these programs. So we want to see where are they now? So we take, we look into the system and we say, where were they in a year? And where are they now in the next three years? And we do kind of like a timeline to look back and say, oh, look at this person now. So many people have been promoted. So many people have now PCS. Look at the positions that they're in. You know, they've elevated their their career to a different position. You know, maybe now they're squadron commanders or wing commanders or stuff like that. Excuse me, deputies, because we track civilians. So they would be they would be deputies. But we definitely want to track where they're at. And really, we want to see. Did they leave the Air Force? You know, after they we gave them all this training because, you know, I'm sure you've heard that, but Air Force people get stolen all the time. You know, Air Force people are looked at because of the training that they attend, you know, the world-class training that we give and, and real-life training that they get. And other agencies look at them and they want to hire them, you know, very quickly. What I will also tell you that a lot of people don't is that a lot of them do come back to the Air Force because the companies that are out there are going to pay them a lot of money. They're going to pay them a lot more money, but they're also not going to give them, you know, the ability to do the things that you can do if you're working for the Air Force. Like as an example, working with uh, cybersecurity, we, we see a lot of those people who love to come back because they like to work real life, real world experiences. In other areas, they may just be able to do it, you know, company to company or or just civilian wide. And so we do see a lot of people that leave the Air Force because they go on to bigger and better things, but then come back. So that's another thing that we, we're pretty proud of is that, you know, go find out if the grass is going to be greener on the other side, but always know that you're probably going to come back. And we've seen that a lot when we track people, as we're tracking people. They have a break in their service, and then they come right back, and then they're, we're like, oh, they left and came back. But that's really the only way that we've been able to track kind of where are people now. I call it where are people now? Where are they now? And so we look at the data, we, look, we do some analysis, and we really, do, I don't feel we do a good enough job of trying to Keep, it, keep track of all of these individuals and say, okay, look at the result of what we did. You know, we sent 1,800 people this year for developmental education programs, or we did so many people in coaching. So where are they now? And what have we done? And how does it correlate back to what we did? You know, what, what we did to send them there and the training that they got. So I think we really need to do a better job of that. We do do some, but I think we, we could do a better job of doing that. What would be the mission of the Department of the Air Force Coaching Culture? I think we can kind of extrapolate from the pillars you spoke about, but I'm curious from your words. So really what they want to do is they just really want to create a coaching culture in the Air Force. That's really what our, our mission is. They want to make sure that we put out as much information on coaching. We want folks to be able to understand the benefits of coaching. Plus, we want to make sure they benefit from the coaching skills and everything that that brings. And like I said before, it's very new to us. Myself being in, you know, in CDE and developmental education programs for civilians, you know, for over almost 12 years, 
it was still pretty new to me. And so getting folks to change the mindset of not only having a mentor, the importance of having a mentor, but also understanding the importance of having a coach or to be coached or to have coach-like skills. That I think is going to be the biggest challenge for us. And I found out later on, I found out that just just these few months that I've been working it, that the Air Force is a little bit confused in those areas. Because when they ask us a question, we kind of have to dig it out of them. Is What is it that you're really looking for? And they really don't know themselves. And so as mm-hmm. we're talking to them, meeting with them, trying to get them to tell us what their needs is, then we can t- kind of guide them on the path that they're asking. Because we have some folks that really just want to do coaching skills. They just want to have coaching skills. They don't want to be a coach and they don't want to be coach, but they want to utilize those skills, like I said, to be a good supervisor, to be able to help people as they you know, go out and talk to people, as they provide feedback and so forth. To have coaching skills, that's great. And, and that's, that's a valuable asset, a good tool you know, to have. But that people don't understand that because then they apply and then they're like, no, 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 no. We, we applied to be a coach, but we really wanted coach-like skills. And then when we tell them what a coach is, they're like, well, I don't know if I want to coach, you know, because they have to give us back hours mm-hmm. if they go through one of our mm-hmm. programs. And so they're like, well, I don't know if I want to actually, I want to go to the training and I want to be a coach, but I don't want to continue to coach. No. That's not, that's not what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they said, no, well, then I really want to be coached. I want to have a coach and I want someone to coach me and help me through the areas that I feel I need help with, you know, either personally or professionally or in my career. So I think that the Air Force right now, from what I'm seeing in just a few months that I started, you know, seeing the email traffic and meeting with people is that there's a confusion out there between what the difference is. And so I think that's going to be one of our other maybe you know, areas of initiatives is to explain to people what the difference really is. What is the difference between coach-like skills, coaching skills, to be a coach, and then what does that entail to be a coach for the Department of the Air Force and all you have to give back? Or do you just want to have a coach? Do you want to be coached? Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what I'm saying. I'm I'm starting to figure out that there's a lot of misconception out there. And to be honest, I would have probably had the exact same questions prior to me taking over the coaching program. And like I said, and I've been in training and development for years. So I think we really need to kind of take a step back, start right there, and then move forward from there. Explain to people what that really means. And then when you tell us what you want, if you're determined that that's the area that you want, then we'll lead you down the right path. We'll lead you down the path of getting coaching skills or lead you down the path of obtaining a coach or lead you down the the path of how to become a coach. And so that's, like I said, one of the areas that I'm starting to look at and and find. But again, overall, I think the main mission of the Air Force is just to introduce the coaching culture. We know it's not going to happen overnight. We know that it's going to take us a while to get the people to change their mindset. Again, everyone understands mentoring. That's, there's a a whole platform for that as well. But what we want people to do is understand coaching and then start to change the culture. And, and we know it's going to take a while, like I said, but we're, we're willing to do it one person at a time. If that's what it's going to take us to do. Change, you know, change the mindset, change the culture one person at a time. And again, if the, it starts with the leaders. If the leaders lead with a coaching perspective, then that really will help the organization. You know, Because if a leader... If it starts with the leader, hopefully it'll trickle down and then it'll kind of like spread faster. There's so much nuance there, like you're saying. And like that's oh, yeah. what we're having all these interviews with people on this podcast and, and there's different perspectives and different answers to the same question. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you'll be glad to know in the civilian leadership course, we do a 90-minute block on what is the coaching culture, SLOC, uh, ASLDS, same thing. You know, go back to your original thoughts on the, some of the differences. I could talk to you for days about this because I'm nose deep in all of this. But when you think about, and I don't want to get too strategic or tactical, but when you think about JADC2, when you think about distributed operations, and you think about mission style orders, those require a very different kind of leadership. Mm-hmm. And so that's a piece of it. 
And then when you think about how do I re- attract and retain world-class talent here in the 23rd year of the 21st century, that's another piece of it. And so it's a, uh, a workforce, a labor economics discussion at, at that level. But for me, the big difference is I use the analogy when we teach coaching, who's in the driver's seat? And when you're coaching, the leader you're coaching is in the driver's seat. They're deciding where, they're growing, they're deciding what, and you're facilitating that self-discovery. When you're mentoring, you're probably in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. So for me, it all comes down to who's growing. And if the leader you're working with is growing, then you're probably coaching. And I love your coaching, coaching skills, or a coach. Three very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we're pursuing is a coaching style of leadership. Mm-hmm. And that yes, will sir. bring us a coaching culture. Mm-hmm. And that's an informal relationship. It's an informal coaching, not the kind of coaching that Lori and Melissa and I are accredited and that you're starting down that path. So in our few remaining minutes, I'm sure people who are watching this are blown away by your energy and your successes. And so if I were a young person in transition, I would want to know how to become you. Tell us your secret of how you got, I kind of know where you're at in the rank structure, I'm guessing, with a pretty good guess. I know where you started. How did you make that happen? So um, one of the big things that I was really pleased to hear about when I started even reading about coaching and, and looking into coaching was that you have to care about people. And so I kind of call myself like an empath or something because I genuinely really do care about people. And so a couple of the things is that if you do care about people, then show it. Because there's a lot of people who claim that they care about people, but they don't show it. Like, for example, when you talk to someone who works for you, ask them about their kids, even know their kids' names, even know their spouses or what their kids are into, because just making that small connection because to me, if someone talks to me about my kids, I light up and I, I'll talk and talk and talk. And so I feel that that's another area where we can make a connection with people by just me showing them, hey, how did, you know, your son doing soccer yesterday or or how did the game go or are they graduating from pre-K or their grandkids? You know, now we have people who are grandparents that really shows them that they care, that you care. Uh, when they have something personal going on in their lives, like if, if you have an individual who has to put their parent in an assisted living facility, you know, reach out to them, let them know that you're there, let them know that you care. And I think that's the big difference is that people always claim that they care about their people, but they don't show them that they care. And I think that's a big difference for me. Like I said, I kind of sometimes feel the the pain that people are going through and it hurts me too. And sometimes I've even let my team see me cry. You know, they, they've seen me cry when things are, whether we're happy, emotional or sad, emotional, they get to see that, you know, and, and try to be just genuine with them. If you really do care, show them that you care. Don't just say that you care. And so when I saw that about coaching, I was like, caring for others. Okay, that is right down my path. And so the other thing that I feel would help someone become me is hard work always pays off. Never underestimate the value of hard work because people can come on and they can talk all about the things that they do and all the things that they've done. And I'm okay with that. I can look at your resume and I can see all the things, all the awards that you've won. And well, what I want to see is when it's time to get down and dirty and do the hard work, can you do it? And so to me, for someone to show me that speaks more volumes than winning the whatever of the quarter or whatever of the year award. Can you get down when it's time to do the hard work? Because a lot of this is hard work. You put in the time, you put in the effort. I promise you, you will see the rewards. But those are my two big things. Hard work. Like, again, you can't ever underestimate the value of that. And then care for people. But when you care for people show them that you care. Don't just tell them that you Mm -hmm, care. mm -hmm. Do the little things that, that really stand out to them to understand that, that you care. Like when I left my team the other day, they told me, Gina, 
No one has bought us breakfast tacos in the morning since you left. <laughs> and didn't even realize how big that was to them just to drive by, pick up, you know, or some tacos for breakfast because we're in San Antonio. You know, we have breakfast tacos. Pick yeah. them up, drive it to you, drive it to work, let them pick whatever they, you know, they ordered. Just those small little things mean a lot. And then they will work their butt off for you. And mm-hmm. then teach them. You know, another thing that I learned from the very first ever coach I had was to teach people, you know, because I had a lot of the information in my mind and I shared it with them, but never really let them do it. So as an example, I used to brief about 62 times a year. And so then I, had, and then I wondered why I had issues with time management, you know? <laughs> so what I did is my coach told me that if a person could do the job at 50% of the level that I could do it, let them do it. And so I did because she said that I would be hurting them by not teaching them. Mm-hmm. And once that mind shift changed in me, then I wanted to surround myself with nothing but rock stars. So started feeding them all this information, teach them, letting them, letting them be the ones to experience it, letting be, letting them be the ones to learn, you know, because the best way for them to learn is to teach. And so then they became the teachers. And so then that's how they learned. And so sure enough, you know, pretty quickly, I became surrounded with a team of nothing but rock stars, you know? <laughs> and so that was, you know, another thing that I learned, but Really, what I had when I had a desk at work, I had this two sayings. One is do the little things that help others do the great things that they are meant to do. So what we did is we developed future leaders for the Air Force. What I'm doing now is helping the Air Force change the culture to coaching and make a change, you know, make a huge change for the Air Force. So I'm doing all of the little things that I need to do to help others do the big things and the great things that they are meant to do. Be future leaders, be your SESs or generals or executives. And then the last one is we rise by lifting others. Those are huge things for me. And most people, when they hear me, they're like, wow, you're very passionate. So I am. And at first, I used to take the word kind of as, "Hmm, maybe they're kind of making fun. But afterwards, and I was like, no, I'll carry that badge. I'll wear Mm. that badge proudly that I am a passionate person. But again, if someone wants to learn to be like me, don't be afraid to do the hard work and care for others. Mm. Because you can build a lot of relationships that way. People who want to help you, people who are willing to be on your team, people who want to come work for you, those things like that. So those are the two big takeaways. If someone wants to learn to be like Gina, then put in the hard work and definitely care for others. Great. Yeah. Um, it resonates. It resonates loudly. So Luca, this is our tradition. You get the last question. All right. So I'm really interested in like intersections between different skills. So, you know, like a technologist going into art or something like that. So do you have any, anything in your personal life, any interests or hobbies that you think have taught you about leadership or coaching culture? So funny you say that because when people ask me about my personal life, I'm pretty boring. I have (laughs) zero work-life balance. There's not such a thing for me because once I get involved, I get involved. And that was one of the big things I worked on last year. The whole year after I left the CDE office, I really worked on work-life balance. And so it really helped me in my health. And so I really felt, okay, I didn't even realize I was having these issues because I was working so much and always putting so much time and all of this stuff. So I really take that again back from when I was young. I'm one of nine children and we were always taught to work hard, work hard, work hard. We don't have room for people to be lazy people. You know, if you want something, go get it. That was kind of my father's advice to us is, go get it. If you want something, go get it. And so, like I said earlier, I knew that I wanted to leave this small little town of 10,000 and, and do something different. And so that was one of the reasons I left the, was to join the Air Force was a way out, you know, and a way to get my education and a way to see the world and travel and so forth. But 
after everything, all the places I've been, all the things that I've done and all the things that I've seen and all my accomplishments, I really feel that it all boils down to working hard. If you want something, go get it and work hard. And so sometimes, you know, like when I first took over coaching, it was so foreign to me. I was like, wow, at my age, I'm going to have to kind of backtrack and put a little bit more effort. But once you start working it again, once you start getting into it again and putting that work in and, and the research and the learning, then you kind of fall back into your comfort zone because that's what you know and that's what you've done. So every time I feel like maybe I'm in a crossroads, like, what am I going to do? Where do I go? It doesn't matter, honestly, because I just feel that if I work hard, I will be successful. If I, no matter what I do, no matter where I go, anything that I touch, if I work hard, I can make, I can be a success, even though it's, it may take me longer than most, you know, since like now I mentioned earlier, I'm not a coach. It's going to take me a while if I decide that, you know, I want to take the coaching classes and stuff and so forth. It'll take me longer, but if I work hard, I can still get there. And so no matter what, if you just kind of stick with those foundations, again, as a, at a very early age, you know, I was always in sports. I had coaches that parents today would be calling the cops on. And <laughs> they got us prepared, you know, for real life. You know, they didn't just give you a trophy just to show up. You know, you had to work hard. You had to do the work. You had to put in the effort. They held you accountable. You know, you had to make sure you passed in order for you to get to play. So everything that I do, I feel my whole life, like I said, I didn't really understand it till I became, you know, more elderly, that that is really my foundation. You know, anything I do or my anywhere I decided to go or, you know, even though you don't have the, the skills yet, if you work hard, you can get them. So always to me is work hard. That's going to always be my, my foundation. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.